And thanks for being with me here on The City. This is CITR 101.9 FM here in Vancouver. Also, uh, we're syndicated on CJSF 90.1 FM uh, coming from Burnaby Mountain at Simon Fraser University. And as always, you can find this as a podcast at thecityfm.org. And and you may be listening to uh, as a podcast uh, from that website or from iTunes. So uh, thanks for tuning in in uh, the variety of ways that uh, you're you're getting this programming. And... uh, we're also broadcasting here from unceded, this unceded and traditional Coast Salish territory of the Musqueam, the Squamish, and the Tsleil-Waututh. And uh, today on the program, we're going to be looking at um, a number of issues related to um, to British Columbia, to Vancouver, and to the history um, of the land that uh, that we're on today. And in in part two, so this is part two of a three-part series, um, Making Stanley Park. And uh, what we're going to continue to do today is continue to discuss uh, the counter-histories of Stanley Park, or what we might say, sort of the alternative um, histories that are not part of the popular narrative around Stanley Park and the making of Stanley Park as a particular place um, within the city of Vancouver, or what we call today um, as Vancouver. And we'll situate Stanley Park as a colonial urban space within broader colonial geographies of encounter between settler societies and indigenous peoples here. Um, But not only um, in the past, but also very much this conversation is part of the present, um, what we might call uh, the colonial present, and how uh, many of these issues um, echo into um, current day and contemporary issues. So in part two of the series, um, I'm going to talk with uh, UBC sociologist Renisa Mawani and, and particularly about the colonial legal practices that were involved in the making of Stanley Park, both in a literal and a symbolic sense, and how Stanley Park um, was constructed and why it was constructed in a particular way. And, and also importantly, how Stanley Park um, exists in sort of a popular imagination within an idea of Canada, but also within an idea of Vancouver and what it represents um, to many people that call Vancouver home or are just passing through Vancouver, um, visiting, um, maybe coming here on a holiday. Dr. Renisa Mawani focuses her research on historical and comparative sociologies of empire, law, and nature, and uh, post-colonial theory. She's author of many books and articles, including Colonial Proximities, Cross-Racial Encounters, and Juridical Truths in British Columbia, as well as Imperial Legacies, Post-Colonial Identities, Law, Space, and the Making of Stanley Park, 1859-2001. to And I spoke with Professor Mawani in August, here in Vancouver. Can you first talk about the popular narrative of colonization in Canada and the idea of a heritage of tolerance? Okay, so colonization essentially is not a very prominent feature of Canadian national identity. Um, As Canadians, we like to think of ourselves as being open, tolerant, and even respectful of difference. And where colonization tends to figure prominently is when we think about the U.S. and about American identity. Um, So in many ways, Canadians uh, forge their identity against that of the U.S. and against Americans. And so it's always really interesting for me when I'm teaching undergraduate students to see the ways in which they perceive the differences between Canada and the U.S. And Canada is often seen as this, you know, um, maintainer of uh, of human rights, um, uh, a site of multiculturalism, 
where immigrants can come and retain their own uh, cultures and identities and in which the rest of us are, you know, tolerant and respectful and that Americans are the ones who are colonists and imperialists. And yet we don't need to look very far back in history to see that Canada is, in fact, has been as and continues to be a settler colony. Um, and this relationship is probably the most evident in uh, colonial relationships that continue with Indigenous people, um, but also in other um, national and international arenas. Mm -hmm. So we like to think of ourselves as a country that hasn't been engaged in colonization, but that is um, essentially a myth. Mm -hmm. In your in your book, Colonial Proximities, you explore a lot of the racial encounters between um, European colonists, Aboriginal peoples, Chinese migrants, mixed-race populations. And I think in all of this, um, where, do, where do particular um, spaces or, or places like Stanley Park um, and even Vancouver more broadly, where do they fall into this idea of like a contact zone in B.C.? Okay, so so yes, so my book is is concerned with uh, with these various contact zones, and one of the ones that I talk about quite extensively is the salmon canneries, right? And that's one of the places where you actually really see these encounters between um, Aboriginal people, Chinese migrants, and Japanese migrants, and people of mixed race ancestry and Europeans. But what's interesting, I mean, we could think about Stanley Park. And in, in many ways, one could actually argue that the history of Stanley Park is uh, a history that doesn't lend itself to this kind of argument about encounter um, and heterogeneity. Um, what's interesting, though, is that uh, in 1907, there was this really wonderful illustration published in uh, the Illustrated London News, and it was a sketch of a Sunday afternoon in Stanley Park, and the Sunday afternoon is um, what's happening on the Sunday afternoon is uh, an anti-Asiatic parade. But despite the headline, what you see is this amazing scene of conviviality, right? You see European men and women with their parasols interacting, or at least in close contact with um, Japanese, Chinese, and South Asian migrants. And now it's very unlikely that this parade ever happened. Um, but what's interesting about the illustration is that it brings to life a set of histories I've encountered that we don't actually know very much about. So from the records that, that exist around Stanley Park, for example, we know that um, there were Chinese squatters living in the park who were removed. There were um, Aboriginal people living in the park and then uh, a number of mixed-race families living at Brockton Point. And so it really was, and Vancouver itself was, in fact, uh, a very polyglot place. There were people from various places in the world, including China, uh, Japan, Portugal, um, various places in Europe, the U.S., that all sort of lived um, in this space together simultaneously. And what we see by the end of the, by the, really by the 1880s and then onwards is a real hardening of racial and spatial boundaries, hmm. um, where these interminglings become much more dangerous, much more precarious, have more serious consequences, 
um, whereas in previous historical moments they weren't they were just part of life on the frontier mm-hmm. I, I want to go to one of uh, a quote from um, one of your articles on Stanley Park and I'm, I'm going to quote and then ask you uh, just to sort of unpack what you mean in this and I quote during the late 19th century colonial authorities were aiming to construct Vancouver as a British settler city an identity that was contingent upon the discursive and material erasure and invisibility of Aboriginal peoples by the early 20th century Aboriginality became increasingly commodified and incorporated into Vancouver's civic image and by the late 20th century this identity became one of multiculturalism and post-colonialism in which Aboriginality figured centrally so can can you unpack some of that and, and explain a little bit more about what you mean? Sure. So in the in the late nineteenth century, maybe I'll I'll actually talk about this in the context of Stanley Park mm-hmm. because I think that's one of the sites in which you really see these tensions and contradictions and these shifts playing out. Um so one of the first the first action that the city of Vancouver initiated after the city was incorporated in eighteen eighty six was to try to lease the peninsula that's now Stanley Park. Um, And, you know, the objective was to create a sort of recreational space for uh, the city's residents. And at the time, the city's residents, the term resident really only applied to Europeans. Um, And so on one hand, this seems quite uh, standard that, you know, in many colonial contexts, Parks were very popular sites of civic identity formation, for example. But in Vancouver, where the uh, European population was really quite insignificant, why would the city want to lease this enormous, enormous peninsula for use as a public park? So it took two years to go through the... um, the city was actually successful in in uh, leasing the land from the federal government, um, and what they proceeded to do was to remove any um, indigenous people that were living in the area. So there was a, uh, a approximately 50 Aboriginal people living in what is now Stanley Park, and those people were moved to uh, reserves on the North Shore and to other pla- other neighboring places. Um, so we see this real sort of uh, erasure of Aboriginal people in the late 19th century. What we see happening in subsequent years, in the 1920s, for example, is a growing concern with Aboriginal um, culture and Aboriginal art. Um, and a really good example is the totem poles, right? Mm-hmm. So the first totem pole was actually placed in Stanley Park in 1903, but what we see by the 1920s is a growing concern both in Vancouver and in British Columbia around the status of totem poles. And so we see this sort of um, the introduction or, uh, or a limited visibility of Aboriginal art and Aboriginal cultural signifiers in the 1920s. Um, and then this becomes more prominent in the 1930s and 1940s, and by the 1960s there is um, there are additional poles put up in Stanley Park, and then by the turn of the century we see um, so by the late 20th century and the early 
and around 2000, we see a growing concern with making Aboriginal people much more visible. Mm-hmm. And one of the places that this is really evident in Stanley Park is in Brockton Point with the visitor center that was um, erected in 2001. Mm-hmm. So if you go to the Brockton Point Visitor Center, there is there are three plaques um, that that explain a certain chronology of um, Aboriginal people and Stanley Park and their their relationship to Stanley Park. Uh, the chronology is not one that I would um, say is entirely accurate, but it is it does actually demonstrate a growing concern and visibility with uh, Aboriginal people. And the argument that I'm trying to make in this article and in um, my work more generally is that erasure doesn't always happen through absence, right? So the displacement and dispossession of Indigenous people does not always happen by erasure or by absence, but it can also happen through um, certain kinds of presences. And I think one of the ways in which... um, the displacement and dispossession of Aboriginal people happened in Stanley Park was through this limited visibility. Mm-hmm. So on the one hand, the city wanted to get rid of real Aboriginal people, but on the other hand, they wanted to maintain um, certain Aboriginal signifiers, which then, I think, became appropriated as part of Canada's national identity. Mm-hmm. Can you talk about, uh, and a lot of your work um, reflects on and explores um, the sort of the legal technologies or or actions that were used um, to enact that erasure. Can you talk more specifically about that and and how that relates to Stanley Park? Sure. So um, the first few, well, the the peninsula was initially... Uh, designated through maps as a military reserve, and then in later maps it became a government reserve. Um, and even though it was an area that was inhabited by Aboriginal people, none of those Aboriginal people were actually marked on these maps. Um, the map essentially produced uh, a piece of land that was empty, that was devoid of any inhabitants. And this becomes really critical in... Um, in cases around property, for example. So who owns the land? Who was there? Were there conceptions? Did the people who lived there have conceptions of, uh, legal conceptions of property that correspond to the ways in which property is conceived in Western law? Um, so that's one of the ways in which these uh, processes of erasure take place in the context of law. Another one, as I just mentioned, is through mapping. Um, by mapping and identifying the land in a particular way, by renaming it and re-territorializing it, it essentially lends, um, these technologies lend themselves to arguments about emptiness and about terranelius, which essentially means empty or vacant land. But there are many other technologies that are not necessarily legal, but that feed into um, into map making and various legal processes. And one of the ones that I've thought about quite a bit, but I haven't actually written about is through plants. Mm-hmm. Um, so, which, and planting of course is central to conceptions of property. So what's interesting about Stanley Park is that um, 
the, the map was drawn of a government and then a military reserve, and then in later maps, the peninsula was identified as a park. Um, but what was interesting is that the park-making process also entailed um, the introduction of various, of hundreds of species of foreign plants, right, plants that were brought from uh, Europe and other places in the world to British Columbia and Vancouver. Um, and one of those is English ivy. So there's been a lot of uh, concern about English ivy, ironically, um, colonizing indigenous plants. Mm -hmm. um, so there are all of these all of these technologies which have to do with map making and property and planting, which are all interrelated, um, have been really uh, significant in initiating and engendering the erasure of Aboriginal people. Can you talk uh, sort of in a similar vein, though, how um, racial categories or processes of racial difference or racialization were also used in, in, the, in the case of Stanley Park? Okay, so um, in the case of early Chinese uh, they were described as squatters who were living in Stanley Park, for example. Um, there was, a, they were actually removed through sanitary and public health and hygiene laws. Um, and one of the very sort of dominant tropes that was used to in discussions of the Chinese was, of course, had to do with sanitation and hygiene. Um, this idea that you know they're unclean, that they have various diseases, and so on and so forth. And so the the Stanley Park was constructed in a particular with a particular national identity in mind. It was intended to be a site of it was intended to be a British uh settler identity. And there are various I mean we can see these initiatives through naming and through planting and through the um placement of monuments, for example. Um, but anything that didn't, and anyone who didn't actually conform to this identity was designated as being either foreign or uh, savage in the case of Aboriginal peoples, um, or as somehow unfit to be part of that space. So there were debates not only around Chinese and Aboriginal people, but also around the working classes. Um, there were large, huge debates around whether or not Stanley Park should be made accessible to a wider public that included uh, people who were not just upper middle class, but who might be of the uh, working classes. And one of the concerns was that to have all of these different kinds of people in the park would be to contaminate or stain the park's identity. So the park from the outset was envisioned in a particular uh, with a particular racial imaginary in mind, um, it was about recreating a British settler. It was about recreating a British identity in a settler colony, um, and there were very coercive measures directed at anyone who didn't, couldn't, or didn't conform to what that vision was. Hmm. I guess also with this, was it necessarily always? Um, uh, I guess sort of the the British settler identity being imposed, or was there a bit of a pushback as well in how Aboriginal peoples or um, other groups responded to these um, certain practices? 
Well, I think there's always been a pushback, certainly. I mean, these these processes didn't go or didn't unfold in a way that was uncontested. Um, and I think it also matters and is very important um, when we're talking about, right? So we see a very sort of... Um, we see a set of practices and processes happening at in the late 19th and early 20th century, and then we see them shift in the 20th century and in the contemporary moment. Um, so in the 1930s, for example, uh, Chief Joe Mathias decided that he was going to capitalize on um, the temporary Indian village that the city had put up in Stanley Park, and he wanted to read... Indian stories to uh, visitors who came by. Um, and at first, the city refused to allow him to do so, and then they actually conceded. Um, and so, you know, he was able to be visible in a way that was according to his own um according to his own choices, right? Not mandated by the city and not mandated by, you know, the city's objectives and aspirations. Um, so we definitely see that, you know, there are, there is pushback. There are, uh, there have been many conflicts around, especially in the last 20 years, around uh, expansion in Stanley Park, right? Given the fact that there are, um, middens that the park, in fact, is the site of various sacred burial grounds. And you see this contestation happening, um, you know, throughout the 1980s and 1990s and into the contemporary moment. So there's always been pushback, and that certainly had an effect on the shaping of Stanley Park and the shaping of Vancouver. Absolutely. Is, is there anything unique um, about the, I guess, the ways in which um, uh, aborigin- Aboriginal people were, were dispossessed and displaced from Stanley Park or the land that we now call Stanley Park, or or is this a story that is very similar to um, other parts of the province? Or other parts of the world. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, one of the interesting things is to, um, to see ha- how universal many of these colonial practices have been. Um, so I've been working in various other contexts, including South Africa and India in the last few years, and it's been really quite remarkable to see um, sort of familiar themes emerge and familiar processes emerge. But what I think is really unique about Stanley Park, um, and in some ways about uh, Canada as compared to the United States and even Australia, is the limited visibility that has been um, afforded to Aboriginal people. And now I'm not saying this to suggest in any way that Canada is somehow better than the U.S. or Australia or other places in the world, or that Vancouver is better than, um, you know, Durban or Natal or um, other places. But what I'm suggesting is that there is a really important mode of colonization that happens through visibility. Um, And so which in many ways makes the settler colonial history of Stanley Park and of Vancouver much more difficult to um, discuss and to um, narrate. Mm-hmm. So what I, think is, what I think has been really 
for me, what has been really, really interesting about Stanley Park is, and its history is that in many ways it's really a microcosm of, you know, what happened in various places in British Columbia and Canada, but also what has happened in various places in the world. But what makes the that particular site unique is that there has, you know, there there has been uh, a real ambivalence around uh, the place of Aboriginal people and whether Aboriginal people should be entirely erased as they have been at certain moments or whether they should be drawn back in as they have been at others. So uh, one of the really interesting uh, archival documents that I came across was a map drawn by um, Henry Creese, who is BC's first Attorney General and a member of the uh, BC Supreme Court. And the map was drawn in 1863, and it's a map of Stanley Park, but with his own annotations marking um, the homes of, you know, people, Indigenous people that he knew, um, or actually marking the numbers of Aboriginal people that lived in in the area. So it's what I think has been is has been really unique about the space is this ambivalence that Aboriginal people are erased on the one hand, and yet they're drawn back in. Um, for various reasons and, uh, you know, to advance various political agendas at other times. Um, and so to me, that's a, that's not only interesting about the space itself, but it's also interesting to think about what makes Canada distinct in terms of its modes of colonization, right? That there have been these spectacular displays of aboriginality. Um, I mean, we see it at the airport, for example. Mm-hmm. It's on our national currency. Um, and yet it's very difficult to um, to accept the, the suggestion that Aboriginal people have, in fact, been part of Canada because we know that that just is not true. So what what interests me is this ambivalence and how it's related to a certain manifestation of colonial power that is really, I think, quite uh, unique in in the Canadian context. I guess the other issue that I'm always confronted with is the and timely now is with the ongoing Truth and Reconciliation uh, Commission, but I guess just the the inability or perhaps um, unwillingness to acknowledge the the profound darkness of the residential schools and, and the extent to which that has been a, a very violent act that that legacy is very much with us um, and with many Aboriginal people today. And I just wonder if you can also reflect on that that uh, within all of this as well. Well, I think one of the one of the things that really concerns me about uh, what I'm calling this sort of limited visibility of Aboriginality in Canada is that it really um, curtails and restricts the kinds of histories that that we can tell, right? Um, and so there is a very sort of um, dominant perception that yes you know, horrible things, Canada did horrible things to Aboriginal people in, you know, the 19th and 20th centuries, and that we're somehow past that, and we have, uh, you know, we've become multicultural, and now we're reconciling. And 
the Canadian government has apologized to you know the pe- to Aboriginal people and to other groups of people that it has um, dishonored and violated in its history. But what is really, I think, uh, disconcerting to me in this narrative is that the contemporary issues facing Indigenous people today, uh, whether we're talking about extremely high rates of incarceration, whether we're talking about um, you know high levels of substance abuse, problems on reserves, none of those seem to be uh, you know none of those seem to be understood as legacies or outcomes of you know hundreds of years of colonization. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think what what I hope will happen with the you know the visibility of the Truth and Reconciliation Commission, which wasn't actually visible when it was first um, appointed and implemented, I was actually really surprised to see the lack of visibility of the TRC. But this new visibility, what I'm hoping will actually come from it is that there will be a more concerted effort to think about the ways in which the historical conditions of uh, dispossession, of re-territorialization, the violence of uh, residential schools, the violence of um, the Indian Act, how all of these have produced really serious contemporary problems that need to be addressed. So, you know, it's it's always amazing that people can actually go and um, go to a talk or go to uh, an event that tries to politicize, a, you know, a piece of history and not be able to make the connection between, you know, what happened historically and what's happening now. And so for me, that's that's what I hope will be one of the outcomes of the Truth and Reconciliation Commission and the discussions around it is that there will be a greater awareness of how, you know, what, of how this violence directed at Aboriginal people in a multiplicity, multiplicity of ways still continues to have a very devastating effect on individuals and on communities. We can look at so many different examples, but one that I covered um, on the program um, a fair bit was the the land struggle um, over Susnam in, in the Marple neighborhood in South Vancouver and a, a very, very colonial um, uh, mindset from the provincial government unwilling to, to step in to protect uh, that that sacred um, cultural ground for the Musqueam. And I guess I just, I really wonder whether, you know, especially with the Truth and Reconciliation Commission and the work that's going on, if we're still having these very fundamental, um, you know, First Nations peoples are still fighting these very fundamental battles over protecting sacred ground where there's ancestral history, um, can we even, can we even, you know, talk about this idea of a a post-colonial Canada? Well, I think one of the fundamental uh, questions that emerges is what is reconciliation, right? And for me, reconciliation is not just an acknowledgement of of what's happened in the past. It actually necessitates some kind of um, fundamental shift in the present and the future. And one of those fundamental shifts has to be around issues of land and ownership. Um, So, you know, I don't don't think that we can actually think um, and 
think critically about the Truth and Reconciliation Commission without actually thinking about its relationship to land. Mm-hmm. Um, but what's interesting is that those connections are not often made mm-hmm. in, uh, in uh, the sort of mainstream and the ways in which the, uh, the commission is, is uh, being promoted and discussed. And, and why would you say that's the case? Because I think there's a lot at stake. Uh, in talking about land, in trying to resolve the, um, you know, the the issue of land, there is a lot at stake. It means that, you know, it means not only will there be winners and losers, but it also means perhaps that we'll have to fundamentally change our conception of what is ownership mm-hmm. and how we relate to the land. Mm-hmm. And I think that that is just so... Um, and how we relate to Canada, how we see ourselves as non-Aboriginal people actually living here, um, you know, I think it really necessitates a fundamental shift in how we think about our relationship to land, to uh, natural resources, to ownership, to the nation itself. And I think that those are so, um, those questions are are so big and so uh, potentially costly for the Canadian government that, you know, the issue of land is just buried and it becomes, whether it's truth and reconciliation or whether it's uh, um, uh, inclusion and visibility, the land just gets completely sidelined from Mm -hmm. the conversation. Mm -hmm. And I don't think that uh, you know, I don't think that we can even begin to talk about uh, reconciliation until we actually address the issue of land. Do you think that will, obviously that's not the the sequence of how things are going now, but do you, are you optimistic? I hope so. I mean, I think in, you know, I know that there's been so much uh, criticism of the Idle No More movement, um, you know, but there has actually been some really interesting um, outcomes from that and and interesting conversations that have generated opportunities for solidarities between Aboriginal and non-Aboriginal people. And so I am, you know, I am very hopeful that uh, something might emerge. I don't think that it's going to be anything that emerges from uh, the Canadian government, I think it's going to have to be something that is organized at the grassroots level. But I think if, you know, there's so many things that have happened that we would never have predicted um, or that we would not have thought would have been possible. Uh, I mean, even the end of, you know, apartheid in South Africa, right? Mm-hmm. I just think that if there's enough pressure put on the Canadian government, um both from Aboriginal and non-Aboriginal people and from the international community. I think that these are issues that are, are going to have to be addressed. Uh, also, as an, as an educator, and you, you teach undergraduate students and um, see a new group every year, do you, do you sense that for non-Aboriginal, non-Indigenous students, there is more recognition of of the colonial past and the colonial present? I think there, I think there is. Um, I mean, I've been at UBC now for 10 years, and it, 
I remember the first time that I taught, and my first term at UBC, my first time teaching undergraduates there, second-year students, and I was teaching on um, kind of sataki. And I recall about 10 students walking out of my class, and I just couldn't figure it out. You know, I had I had lived in Vancouver before, but I had been gone for so long, and I uh, came back, and I didn't actually realize how politically charged these questions were. Um, but over the last 10 years, I think that students are becoming much and much more uh, aware, much more critical, much more willing to engage. Um, certainly in sociology, absolutely. So mm-hmm. a lot of uh, the professors in my department, a lot of my colleagues, are really. Um, immersed in these issues, both in terms of pedagogy and in terms of research. And so, you know, I do actually see quite a significant shift. Um, and students are really concerned about the future, right? So it's not, it's no longer just about, um, you know, Aboriginal people trying to make claims to land, but it really is about trying to find ways to live sustainably in, you know, a world of shrinking resources, uh, to live in some kind of um, with some kind of sense of community, um, and so I do see a, a shift absolutely. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, it's it's not where I would want it to be, but I think that students are increasingly open to you know listening and thinking critically about these issues and um, trying to find ways of making a difference. I guess one of the things, just returning to Stanley Park and the city of Vancouver marking the 125th anniversary of the park, and I was looking over the the timeline, there's an online uh, timeline of the park's history, and um, looking through it, sort of optimistic that there would be recognition and just an explicit acknowledgement of of the the very colonial um, practices involved in dispossession and displacement, and uh, and did not find anything um, like that. I, I guess I just want to ask you, if you know, upon something like the Truth and Reconciliation Commission, and you know, September students are given time off to be able to attend some of these events and and really think about this, um, and just with everything that you've also said in mind if the city of Vancouver still is very much carrying on this very colonial trope about and, and very, it's a triumphant colonial trope about this park. I just, I, I, I wonder, um, <laughs> is, is there something there to work with or are we just kind of doing, doing circles? Well, I mean, I'm not surprised that the city is not ready to acknowledge the park's colonial history. I'm not surprised at all. Um, but what's been really quite interesting to see in the last few weeks is the numbers, you know, the number of interviews um, that people have done with various um, media outlets um, in which there is an explicit acknowledgement of uh, the park's colonial history. So I'm thinking of um, a piece in the Georgia Strait, um, you know, several other pieces. I think there was one in the Vancouver Sun. And so I was really pleased to see that, you know, that these 
histories are actually making their way into the mainstream. I'm not surprised that the city is not ready to acknowledge it at all, but I think that um, part of, you know, doing this work is to always be able, is to always be able to offer a counter history, um, something that, you know, raises questions about the triumphant plotting of dates and events that you're describing with respect to the city's um, celebrations around Stanley Park. Mm-hmm. But it is, I mean, it is, uh, you know, it's, on the one hand, I'm, I think it's important for students to be able to have, uh, to, to be introduced to the TRC, to have an opportunity to witness the, you know, uh, discussions and deliberations firsthand. But on the other hand, you know, I think that, again, that is the, the history that's going to be produced there is a history that really needs to be, um, countered with counter histories, right? Um, because it's not going to be the history that links, um, you know, residential schools to land. It's not going to be the history that links the contemporary um, issues confronting Aboriginal people to residential schools and to other forms of colonial violence. Um, but it is an opening. It's an opening for me, for example, it's an opening. I'm teaching first year students this year. This will be my second time ever. Um, and it presents an opening to actually have that critical conversation. Whereas if, you know, if uh, students weren't given time to go and uh, participate in the TRC, then that would be a lost opportunity for for people like us. Mm-hmm. Moving forward, do you, I guess, do you want to offer any other thoughts or reflections on um, e- either Stanley Park or TRC or um, uh, the the land that we live on uh, more broadly <laughs> as we wrap up? Uh, well, there are... <laughs> a big question. Uh, They're all, and they're certainly all connected. I mean, I think what uh, what I would really, there have been, what I would really like to see is some kind of, uh, you know, material shifts in the ways in which we think about land, whether it's, you know, uh, the land on which we live, whether it's the land that we, you know, use for recreational purposes. Um, And I think that those changes or those shifts can only come when we actually engage in uh, a you know critical dialogue and when we're able to when we're actually ready to listen to the uh, the claims made by Aboriginal people for you know uh, the claims to their own ancestral territories. So I would you know I think that uh, that that what we really need is a paradigm shift, a paradigm shift in terms of how we think about land, resources, and ownership. Can you first talk about the popular narrative of colonization in Canada? And this is the city here on CITR 101.9 FM, CITR.ca, and syndicated on CJSF 90.1 FM, cjsf.ca and I'm Andy Longhurst and over the hour we heard uh, from uh, Dr. Renisa Mawani and she is uh, Associate Professor in UBC's uh, Department of Sociology 
and she's written extensively around issues of post-colonialism and uh, especially also around Stanley Park and uh, thinking about Stanley Park and often um, the colonial practices that, that went into the construction and the making of Stanley Park as um, a colonial space. We're about out of time on, on the program, but uh, we're going to end up, uh, finish off with a song, and we've got some public service announcements. Um, but we also have lots of, con- um, con- uh, lots of content excuse me, online, and that's at thecityfm.org. Again, www.thecityfm.org. And uh, you can also check us out on Facebook, and that's by searching The City, Critical Urban Discussions. And additionally, uh, follow us on Twitter, the city underscore FM. Lots of ways uh, to keep in the loop about upcoming content, and we're going to continue this uh, series, Making Stanley Park, a mini radio uh, documentary series here on the program, by talking with Sean Courage, and he is author of a recent book uh, called Inventing Stanley Park. And it's an it's a environmental history of Stanley Park, and uh, he asks questions um, like, you know, maybe we should think of Stanley Park rather than as sort of a natural space, um, but he asks us to think of how is, how is Stanley Park perhaps maybe the most unnatural space in Vancouver. So this, uh, this conversation about Stanley Park as um, the city of Vancouver marks the 125th anniversary, all of these um, discussions um, will continue um, and conclude next week. And that's Tuesdays, 5 to 6 p.m. Um, here on CITR 101.9 FM and uh, 10 to 11 a.m. Fridays syndicated on CJSF 90.1 FM in Burnaby. We're going to hear a track from Braids. This is off their latest release. Thanks for tuning in. Have a great week.
the vast amount of changes happening in the world, it's almost impossible to get a clear picture of what's really going on. We are trapped within the logic of capitalism, leaving us unable to imagine what comes next. The Extra Environmentalist brings the perspectives of people who can see the whole picture and are ready for whatever comes our way. Tune in to The Extra Environmentalist every Wednesday from 2 to 3 p.m. on CITR 101.9 FM. This is the viewpoint that makes all places the same to you. Media Democracy Days presents their fifth annual fundraising concert democracy, Loud, taking place Thursday, October 17th in 2013 at the Railway Club, doors at 8 p.m. Funds raised go to support media reform and democratization in Canada. The event features three local bands and great prizes. Tickets are 10 bucks. For more information, visit therailwayclub.com and look under events. Discorder Magazine is proud to sponsor the Vancouver International Film Festival's showing of Tito on Ice, directed by Max Anderson and Helena Ahonen. A surreal tale in which graphic novelists cart along a macabre papier-mâché mummy of Marcel Josip Broz Tito encased in a refrigerator on a barnstorming tour of the former Yugoslavia. For showtimes and more information, visit vif.org. The AIDS Vancouver Helpline is here to help. Open from 9 to 4, Monday to Friday, the Helpline answers questions about HIV and safer sex. Call to find medical support in your area without giving your name. Run by volunteers, the Helpline is one of the many programs from AIDS Vancouver combating the HIV epidemic in the Lower Mainland. While not medical professionals, our volunteers answer your questions confidentially and anonymously. The Helpline number is 604 696 or contact us at aidsvancouver.org A billion dollars 